ways in which, well, for example, the whole emphasis on spontaneity. All right, spontaneity is wonderful, it's terrific, etc. Uh, Whitman, too, says spontaneous me. But spontaneity is also something that happens during a war. All you've got is this moment. You may be dead because somebody may shoot you in the next moment. And so spontaneity is all the joy that you really have in a wartime situation. And so much of this carries over into the 50s and even into the 60s. And the sad part about all this is that we seem to be always constantly at war. Well, yeah, that's our profession. That seems to be the profession of the United States. Uh, Yeah, over there, indeed. Well, I'm going to change the subject. Okay. (laughs) The other subject that poets delight in is nature and the seasons. Mm -hmm. And every summer... I write a poem, and I write a poem for Susan Shirell because her birthday is in June. And this is one that I wrote many years ago. It's an octo. You might remember hearing octos from me before. You invented that form. Well, you say I invented it, but I think I am just an inheritor of it. It's, or maybe modifier. It's eight lines of eight syllables Lines three, two, and one are repeated in the opposite order. Lines four and five rhyme. Of course, you're totally confused, but it will make sense when you hear the poem. It's an octo. It's called Splendid Summer. Splendid summer smiles upon me. Wonderful weather where I walk. Following fun folks where they tread, water, sand, rock, and earthly soil. Even sprinkling showers can't spoil. Following fun folks where they tread, water, sand, rock, and earthly soil. Splendid summer smiles upon me. Lovely, oh. lovely. And you get credit for for inventing the form in Louis Turco's uh, Book of Forms, I believe. Well, then I must... If it's you must have done it. Book, yeah. I must have done if it's it. In a book, if it's in a book, it must be true. It must be true. <laughs> and this is the most recent summer poem that I wrote for Susan. Susan Shirell, by the way, is a little on the noir side. She's a detective book writer. Mm-hmm. Summer Solstice... 2019. Susan summons summer, soaring, scanning the shore, leaping into lakes just thawed, swimming away, shoes and all. Her celebration was the icing on the cake, coming in those last lengthening days. Our party songs calling in migrating ducks and geese. Soon, summer days will ever so slowly shorten, yet they will feel luxuriantly long till one day it will start darkening before dinner. But not now. Now the garden overflows with joyous color. Clothes rejoice in the season. Earrings dangle like chimes in the sea breeze. Oh, Susan, you unleashed so much pleasure for a community. That's wonderful. And I'm sure she loved it. Who wouldn't? I hope she did. And um, 
This is the first one I ever wrote for her, and it's called Susan's Voice or Summer's Voice. Her voice calls me away from discouragement and negative spaces, fills the air with hope, vibrating with encouragement, tinged with summer's joy. It is she who summons summer to begin. And there's always another uh, great attachment to summer for me, and this poem is about that. It's called Giving Birth to Summer Solstice. Luxuriating in the light, extending into lingering afternoon, tipping towards evening at a leisurely pace, memories surfing of a fertile time when three years apart, within three days on these summer solstice days, I gave birth twice, a startling act twice. Not without pain, confusion, crisis, and the recognition of my power. Yet sensing that a more powerful force happened through me on June 21st and June 24th. I, both a mere conduit and the central player. Those babies then had babies who had babies. I began a begat. (laughs) I, both a mere conduit and a central player. Absolutely. That's marvelous. Oh, thank you. And I've seen some photographs of your uh, granddaughter, who is lovely. Oh, uh, one of the one of the three granddaughters. Three granddaughters, yes, and uh, but one has been helping you out and being. Oh well, she was uh, of just visiting, mm-hmm. and so uh, she was wonderfully helping me out. So I just want to end that by saying that I actually have uh, six grandchildren and six great grandchildren, and it all started with two children. Wow! Yeah. Your your line is there. <laughs> it's not only poetry, but your line is there. That's marvelous. And some people may have tuned in at 3.30, so we want to mention again where you're going to be tonight at 7. Uh, at the Frank Bett Center for the Arts. Yes, I happen to have the address. The Frank Bett Center <laughs> for the Arts Good. at 7 p.m., 1601 Paru Street, P is in Paul, A-R-U Street in Alameda, and right off Lincoln. That's at 7 o'clock, Frank Bett Center for the Arts, a poetry reading with marvelous visiting poets, including both Jack and me. Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm only a minor figure in this one tonight, but um, I'm happy to be there and happy to support Nina and also the Benicia poets who will be reading with her. And tomorrow is the 4th of July, and as um, many, many a person knows, um, George M. Cohan was born on the 4th of July. I'm a Yankee doodle dandy, and I was born on the 4th of July, said Cohan. This was questioned after his death 
by a supposed friend of his who found not his birth certificate but his baptismal certificate that claimed he was born on July 3rd. And so suddenly that story got brooded around. But there's no real evidence apart from that. And and my father had a birth certificate that said he was born a week earlier than he was. It was wrong. It was just a clerical error. And I expect that's all it was on that uh, baptismal certificate. But the guy who wrote it, Ward Morehouse, rode that for all it was worth, and he made as much of it as he possibly could after Cohan was dead and could not talk about it. So... I have a very rare speech that Cohan made in 1938, and uh, I'm going to play it for you today. It's a speech all about his life. Tomorrow is the 4th of July. As it happens, I own a remarkable, extremely rare career-summing-up speech by the composer, lyricist, playwright, actor, Yankee Doodle Dandy, George M. Cohan, who lived from 1878 to 1942. Cohan was, as he accurately says in his song, born on the 4th of July. The speech was delivered in 1938 to the Catholic Actors Guild and includes Cohan's recitation of a passage from his play, The Tavern, which was produced in 1920. Cohan's speech is introduced by his longtime partner, Sam H. Harris. Some years ago, there was born on the 4th of July an American boy. And what difference makes it what year it was? <laughs> that young fellow who was born on the 4th of July has since become the greatest individual single figure in the American stage. George M. Cohan. gathering here tonight, it's more of a tribute to the memory of my father than anything else. And of course, that makes it doubly thrilling to me. I, uh, <coughs> I understand, I realize that an occasion of this time that a man should really have sat down and prepared a substantial speech of some kind. But that, of course, that's asking a great deal of a song and dance man. <laughs> Especially a song and dance man who tried so hard not to be a song and dance man. <laughs> and then had to go back being a song and dance man in order to earn a living. <laughs> About a week ago, the New York Times called me up. And the fellow on the phone asked me if I would send them an advanced copy of my speech that I was to deliver at the Catholic Actors Guild dinner. And that kind of made a hit with me. I told him, I said, why? I said, I haven't any speech. At least not yet. Well, he said, you know, the dinner's next Sunday. I says, that's what I'm talking about, yes. 
Then I tried to explain to him that I was the kind of a fellow that never even started to write a second act until the first act had been in rehearsal at least a week. <laughs> he couldn't quite understand that, however. But that's the way it is. I remember very well when I was a playwright in the old days. A fella come up and ask me during the rehearsal of the first act, say, what am I going to wear in the second act? I had a set speech for him. I said, well, I don't know, but if you tell me what you'd like to wear, maybe you can give me an idea for a second act. <laughs> I always wanted to be able to make a good speech all my life. I've been wanting to make a good speech. And I always wanted to play a good game of pool, too, but I somehow... <laughs> I never could make the grade either way. I don't know why it was. However, I'm satisfied. It's all right. I'm glad to be working for Sam Harris. <laughs> He worked for me for 15 years. <laughs> he didn't know it at the time, but he's found it out since, I guess. <laughs> this uh, Harris man, by the way, is a very surprising person. Full of surprises. I know he's handed me many a surprise. I don't mean by that that I didn't always know that he was a great showman, great judge of plays and all that sort of thing. But I mean, he is really, he's a surprising man. I remember the first time he surprised me. Of course, when Sam and I first went in business together, I naturally thought Sam had a lot of money, you know. <laughs> now, we didn't talk about that until we were in the middle of rehearsals of our, of our first show. And when he told me he was broke, that was my first surprise. <laughs> he seemed to be just as much surprised as I was when I told him I was broke, too. <laughs> And the members of the company were very much surprised when they found out we were both broke. <laughs> However, we did all right. We went along for a long time. We, uh... Eventually, we had a lot of shows. And we got a lot of theaters. And I remember when we started to accumulate our theater interests, I remember I went to my father. I was a little bit worried about coming to involve. I told him I, what, what we were doing. I asked him, I said, do you think we ought to hang on to these theaters? And I remember my father's advice. I remember it very well. He said, well, I don't know much about whether or not you ought to hang on to the theaters, but you take my tip, kid, and hang on to your dancing shoes. <laughs> But as to get back to this speech business again, I read in the paper the other day, I was reading Mrs. Roosevelt's column. <laughs> so you can see that I give the papers an awful reading. <laughs> reading where she told about some fellow that went around, that she'd watched him. I think it was two or three years. He'd been making the same speech no matter where he went. Made the same speech in the same way, same delivery, same inflection, same everything, same gestures, everything he did. 
She heard it, she said something like a half a dozen or a dozen times. It's always the same speech and he always got away with it. Well, it's getting very late. And I'm going to tell you that I beat that fellow to it. I, uh, I made the same curtain speech for about 25 years. And I'm going to make that speech now. And I don't think I'm out of order making it. Because spiritually, I really think that my father thanks you, my mother thanks you, my sister thanks you, and as for myself, that goes without saying. Now there's another speech that I've made for the past 25 years, every chance I got to make it. And uh, a few years after I concocted this thing, I found a place for it in a play. And it kind of sums up my idea, my outlook on life. And I think that most any sensible man feels the same way about it. And this is the speech. I don't know who I am, and if I knew, I'd be the most miserable man on earth. But my greatest happiness lies in the fact that I occupy a unique position. For I have never been cast for a part in this great world drama of life. I am a lonely, single-handed spectator. I'm sitting back, looking on and laughing. I'm laughing at the monkey signs of the great all-star company of millions and millions of men and women who are unknowingly playing the piece for me. I am the audience. And if I may say so, I'm a highly intellectual audience. For in all the changing scenes of this ever-beginning, never-ending, plotless plot, I recognize the spiritual hand of a great director, a master dramatist, who has so skillfully staged his tightly woven, disconnected spectacle, a tragic nonsense. And so I am amused, and I laugh, and I applaud, and if I am any critic, this is a fully good place. One of these days, I hope to meet the author and to compliment him for his marvelous entertainment. Now, alas, there is no one with whom I may discuss the merits of this very wonderful play because the rest are on the stage. I'm sitting out front alone, all alone. Do you follow me? I hope you do because that's the end of my speech. I think I, in commentary on that, I could say this. It's hardly strange that a man who spent his whole life in the theater should finally come to regard theater itself as life. In the end, 
Cohen is not even a performer. <coughs> Excuse me. He's only a member of the audience, someone whose lone perceptions are shared by no one. Cohen, the great performer, finally becomes Cohen, the critic, a person who has no audience whatsoever, no one to whom he can tell the life secrets he has learned. His is a position of pure theatricality, an affirmation of the essential nothingness of life, though Cohen does assert the existence of a master director. His strong creative drive, remarked James Cagney, gave him no rest. Near the conclusion of Cohan's play, Pigeons and People, his leading character asks, Why should I permit life to make a fool out of me? That's what's the matter with life, Doc. It's had too much of its own way. Somebody's got to give it a battle. Why not I? Wow. You know, when I was a kid, I saw that movie, Yankee, Yankee Doodle, Doodle Dandy. Dandy. Yeah. It was a wonderful film. <coughs> and it is most people's understanding of what Cohen was all about. But there was more to him than that. And um, it's interesting to... I've read some of the plays and things like that that he's talking about here. And it's interesting to see what happened during the course of his life. At the end of his life, he his plays all failed if he wrote a play. But he was he had great success as an actor. So he would write a play, be in it. The play would last three days. He would act in a play, and you'd be in sensation. It was this crazy situation in which people liked him, but no longer liked his writing. Well, that's what he said about himself. He said he had back to... when I was a playwright. Yeah, yeah. Right. and and he said that he had to go back to his dancing and and performing because that's what brought him money. That's right. It was uh, he's talking about um, uh, that uh, musical about Roosevelt. Uh, um, uh, I'd rather be right. And in that musical, he plays Franklin D. Roosevelt as a singing and dancing president. And nobody thought it was strange that Roosevelt would be presented as a person who danced. Right, given that he was a man in a wheelchair. That's right, yes. Of course, that was always masked in the photographs of him and so on and so forth. But yes, that's what he means also by working for Sam Harris, that that he and Harris were partners for many years. But finally, uh, that show, I'd Rather Be Right, was produced by Harris. Well, I have a poem I'd like to read called A Love Poem to Life. A goodness comes. I recognize it. It is always there, though I can't always see it. Today, I saw it, glowing a soft yellow sunlight with no burn a warm light stirring a soft breeze of pleasure, a lifting feeling in my forehead, unformed thoughts shifting and dancing so I can check them out later. But now I have only to enjoy the goodness before it flees, suddenly as it arrived. I record it here in memory so it will be known to me and maybe others, that good exists, can be felt, then melt into the receding storehouse of knowledge 
that talks inside my head and maybe yours to guide us through this harsh wilderness and out again into the comfort zone where breath comes easily, confident that tomorrow will arrive, that love exists and loves you. Oh, bless you. And you pointed to me. Thank you, sweet. That was very, very lovely. And it was a lovely poem, too. Thank you. Nice to be addressed by a poem. Um, I was thinking I might read something here about Julia Vinograd, whom we both knew and both admired and loved. And this is just a short poem. I wrote a sequence of poems for her at her death, um, which was in uh, 2018, last year, December. Can a street mourn? Can a street shed tears? How many of them gone now? Julia shedding her street persona, shedding everything. Body, friends, paraphernalia of life. Gone now with Jack Micheline, Gene Ruggles, poets hawking their wares on the streets of Berkeley and everywhere, leaving their words here, there, everywhere. In the nursing home, she said, I said, I miss your hat. She said, so do I, gesturing. It's behind me. Deep with the first dead lies Berkeley's daughter. Another woman gone to the deep grains of our hearts. May she rest in peace. May she rest in peace, yeah. Wow. And may her poetry continue to actively be enjoyed. Hearts. All of that stuff. Yes, that's what we hope for. That's part of what I meant by, I think, you know, that, that we justify our lives through the poetry. We say, this, this is what I thought. I was here. I hope it will help you. It helped me. You know, I realize that you have brought back the, these pictures, the word pictures, of the death of a few of our local poets. Yes. Just over the last two or three years that we've been doing this program, yes. you have actually been at their deathbeds or with them in those last Absolutely. hours. Absolutely. That you have been so faithful, not just to the cause of poetry, but to the cause of the poets. Yes, I, I, I've tried. And it's, you know, and these have been dear friends. Poetry has been a lifelong, of course, activity of mine. And I mean, there was my wife Adele, of course, Larry Eigner, um, David Melser, I'm just H.D. Moe. I mean, just all kinds of people to whom I was close and um, whose work I admired. And um, suddenly they became a closed chapter. And that was a very, very strange... The, the, the word that I use most about death is that it is strange. That something that we had seen every day, something that was with us all the time, someone we'd been close to, is suddenly gone. Not there at all, except in memory, of course. But um, that death is strange. It's a strangeness at the heart of life. Yes, but long live life. Long live life. Long well, live as, life. As Dr. Feng said to me, live. I mean, that's what you should do. <laughs> that was really good advice. And I hope that tonight we'll see you at the Frank Bett Center for the Arts in Alameda. What's that's the address? 
at uh, 1601 Paru, P-A-R-U, at the corner of Lincoln in Alameda. It's at 7 o'clock, and uh, you can find it quite easily just by going down Lincoln, and it's a corner house. It's a little wooden house that was left to the arts community. It's a beautiful idea. Thank you, Mr. Bett, whoever you are. We don't know, actually. We could find that out. And we'll tell you next week. Uh, Next, yes. Next (laughs) Next month. month. (laughs) And there's our music. So, we're winding up another Nina Jack show. We always enjoy doing them. We hope that you enjoy them as well. And it's something that's been a part of our life for the last few years. And... It's been great. Trading things back with Nina has been wonderful. It's been great. And thank you for listening. Thank you all. And have wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. Yes, and have a good night, too. Thanks, Nina. Thanks, Jack. Against Free Speech is a new book that exposes the ominous forces and creepy political machinations increasingly defining free speech. Our investment in the First Amendment has long obscured a dark truth. Actual free speech is impossible in any society in which corporations and the ultra-rich can easily bankroll their own views. P.E. Moskowitz, author of The Case Against Free Speech, The First Amendment, Fascism, and the Future of Dissent, will appear Wednesday, August 28, 7.30 p.m. at First Congregational Church of Berkeley, 2345 Channing Way. This KPFA benefit wheelchair accessible will be hosted by Philip Maldery. Get tickets at brownpapertickets.com or indie bookshops in the East Bay. That's for P.E. Moskowitz, August 28th. You're listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno.